This morning we're going to be unpacking one verse, one short statement that Jesus made in one of his most famous sections of teaching that's come down to us in the Bible. A section of teaching known as the Sermon on the Mount, a section within a section known as the Beatitudes, a series of short little pithy statements of Jesus about what it's like in his kingdom and even more about who will be in his kingdom, what people in his kingdom look like. Today the statement we're going to unpack is his, is his promise that those who are pure in heart are blessed, that they're the ones who will see God. Seeing God is a basic human desire. That's what the Bible says. And all of us come hardwired with a desire to see the one who made us. And we don't always know it, that that's what's going on inside of us. This is what God's word tells us is going on, not, what, not, not the sort of words we would put to it in our own experience apart from his word. We know that we're hungry for something more. We know that we sense there's more out there than what we know already. We know that there's dignity in human beings that we can't explain apart from what God says in his word. We know that there are forces out there we can't control from earliest human history. Some of the earliest things that come down to us from the art, from the sculptures, from the texts of the earliest humans that were painting pictures and building sculptures and writing texts is that there was this desire for some God that could be seen. A desire to take the powerful things that are out there that we know we're subject to and can't control and put something visible, something tangible on them. Israel's neighbors like to do this with sculptures. We build statues that were associated with the powers of things like rain or the sea, the sun, or the harvest, fertility. One of the, one of the constant themes in it throughout the Bible is, on, is Israel's desire to have a visible God like everybody else seemed to have. Israel was always tempted to run after the gods of their neighbors because they had gods you could see. They had gods you could manipulate, that you could somehow bring into your control, or so they thought. In our context, we're less likely to create an object like a statue and claim that it's divine. A little more likely than anybody ever has been to think we control the world. But we're still intrigued by the spiritual. We're still intrigued by unseen powers. And chances are... Just because you're here this morning, you're interested in seeing God. If you're not a, if you're not a Christian, maybe, maybe you're here because you're testing to see if this is real. If what your Christian friends have told you has anything to it worth trusting. Maybe you want to understand what it is that other people are believing about God. Maybe you're just searching Searching for some sort of meaning that's bigger than your preferences. That's longer lasting than your life. If you're a Christian here this morning, perhaps you've learned from experience how valuable time with other believers can be for, for sharpening your vision of God, for enabling you to see Him and to connect with Him. Maybe that's why you keep coming back on Sundays. or Maybe, maybe you're here as a Christian because you're, you're doubting 
you're doubting whether or not the things you used to believe are true. Maybe you think, maybe you think you just believe those things because you never imagined them not being true. Because people you trusted told you they were true. Maybe that's being tested for you now and you're here because you wonder about the claims of the Bible. You wonder if maybe you've just been deluded and you're looking to see if God's there. Maybe you're here because your feeling towards Him has grown cold. You want to see Him because you know what it's felt like before to be close to God. To feel as if you were hearing from Him. To feel as if He was with you in what you were facing. But, but now, maybe for a while, He seems distant and abstract and personal. Maybe you're suffering and you want to know that God is with you in your pain, that he's not surprised by your pain, that he's not unnoticing of your pain. I don't know why you've come this morning, but chances are you've come because you want to see God. And, and to whatever extent that's true, in whatever way it's true, Jesus' words to you this morning are good news because Jesus promises Not only is it possible to see God, it is promised to some that they will see God. Jesus is saying in the verse we're going to unpack this morning that in his kingdom, you will see God, guaranteed. That his kingdom is a kingdom where God is with his people, where God is fully accessible to his people. But his is a kingdom that's only possible for the pure in heart. If you want to see God, you've got to be pure in heart. So this morning, what we're going to ask is, is two questions. Assuming we all want to see God, we're going to ask, why is purity of heart necessary? And how can I be pure in heart? Two simple questions. Why is purity of heart necessary if I want to see God? And how can I be pure in heart? Now I'm going to ask you to please stand with me in honor of God's word while I read from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. This is Jesus' word to you this morning. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is God's word. You can be seated. Why is purity of heart necessary? Right? The sin is pretty clear, right? What Jesus means. If you want to see God, you've got to be pure in heart. Why? I think the first thing we've got to do is avoid a misconception here. I mean, at first glance, it can sound like Jesus is talking about sinless perfection. That you've got to be sinless and perfect if you want to see him. Because that's the way we think about purity. That's one way purity is used in the Bible. And to be honest, there's a sense in which it's true that you need to be sinlessly perfect if you want to see God. Jesus says something a whole lot like that later on in the sermon. And that kind of perfection is a perfection that's beyond me, it's beyond you, and it's beyond everyone else who has ever lived. The kind of sinless perfection that's necessary to be in God's presence is the kind of sinless perfection that only comes as a gift from Jesus who earned it and who gives it freely to anybody who looks to him. But that's the subject of other texts, not our text. 
When Jesus is talking about purity of heart here, he has something else in mind. And we've got to understand what that is before we'll understand why it's necessary if we want to see God. To understand what this purity, this sort of purity is, Matthew 5, 8 purity, think not about the absence of a stain that sin might have put on you. Think more about the absence of mixture. So impurity could mean stained, or it could also mean mixed up. And as Jesus is using it here, he has mixture in mind. Pure water is water that doesn't have a bunch of dirt in it, that doesn't have oil mixed in it, for example. Pure in heart are those whose hearts are unmixed. So here's what the heart means in the Bible. The Bible talks about it a lot. And when it talks about it, it talks about it as the command center of the person. The heart in the Bible is the you of you. It's the, it's the you that thinks and wills and feels, that wants. More, more than anything else, your heart is the center of your desires, your orientation in life towards the world. It's, it's how all of your thoughts and your, and your will and your feelings flow together into desires that orient your life. That's your heart. It's the inner you. It's who you are. And it's what God cares about above all. It's why the, the law, so in, in, the, in the Old Testament, one of the most important sections that towers over everything else is a summary of the law in Deuteronomy where, where God says through Moses, you're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He starts with heart here because heart is a summary of everything else. Your goal, your calling as one of God's people, that verse says, is a heart that's completely given over to love of God. Another way to put it is a pure heart. A heart that loves Him purely. An undivided heart, an unmixed heart. When Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, He's almost quoting from a passage in the Old Testament, not Deuteronomy, Another passage in the Old Testament that says basically the same thing. I want you to flip over. If you have a Bible, flip over to Psalm 24. Flip over to Psalm 24. This is, this is what Jesus has in his mind when he's, when he's making this statement. Listen to what this psalm says beginning in verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Those are two questions that ultimately say who shall see God? Who shall be with him? Who will enjoy his presence? Answer, same one Jesus just gave. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. What does it mean to have a pure heart? He continues. One who does not lift up his soul to what is false. So an impure heart would be a heart that's lifted up to what is false. Think of idolatry here. Think of Israel as looking around at their neighbors whose gods seem more visible and offering part of themselves or their loyalty and their love to those gods, those false gods. A pure heart then is the opposite of someone lifting up their soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Think of a sworn oath to God that is empty, that's a shell, that doesn't have integrity. They don't say they're with God and and then not really be with God. So they're not lifting up their soul to anyone else and they're not 
only sort of half-heartedly lifting up their soul to God. They're not swearing deceitfully, not really meaning their loyalty to him. What is a pure heart? It's a heart that's undivided, that's unmixed, that's integrated and given over to God completely. One more cross-reference to help you see that this is what he's talking about. It comes later. It's, it's where James is almost quoting from Jesus. In James chapter 4, this is a, a passage we unpacked together last fall. James wrote to, to his friends, draw near to God. Again, God's presence is in view here. I want to see him. I want to know he's with me. I want to know where he is. I want him in my life. Okay, if that's what you want, James says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. What does it mean to draw near to God? James says, James 4, 8, cleanse your hands, you sinners. And what? Purify your hearts, you double-minded. So here James is, is pointing in the same direction Jesus is pointing and that Psalm 24 is pointing. Purity of heart is absolutely necessary and purity of heart is the opposite of double-mindedness of having a mind that's sort of given over to God and what he says and what he asks of us, but it's also sort of running down another path, hedging your bets, looking for other options that might be more trustworthy. Purity of heart is the opposite of double-mindedness. It's a unified, unmixed devotion to God. Purity of heart is the desire for God's presence above all else in place of all else as the only object that's worth trusting, as the only object that will ever satisfy. And what Jesus is saying is that if you have purity of heart, if God is what you want, if God is really what you want, then God is what you get. So now back to the question at hand. Why is it necessary that we be pure in heart if we want to see God? It's necessary because seeing God is always relational. It's personal. It's not like seeing a planet from a telescope. It's not like seeing a show on TV. It isn't like seeing a beautiful piece of art in a museum. It's like experiencing the presence of another person. And you can't be with God. You can't be enjoying God's presence while you're looking around for other options. That's insulting. That kills intimacy. It kills trust. It kills loyalty. It kills those things in any relationship. And our relationship with God is not any different. There was a time in my life where I used to go to a lot of conferences. I still go to some, but not nearly as many. The conferences are conventions where you would mainly went for the networking. You went to you know shake hands, put names and faces together, see if we could make connections that will be helpful to you to other people in your work. And I remember, I mean, pretty much every convention I've ever gone to, the same experience always happens to me. And it's actually something I've been guilty of more, uh, more than a few times. I'll get into a conversation with somebody... Maybe we're in an exhibit hall, you know, there's booths everywhere, people are milling around, talking. Get into a conversation with somebody, but the whole time they're talking to me, their eyes are kind of over my shoulder, watching people come in the back entrance to the exhibit hall, trying to see if there might be somebody else who'd be a little bit more useful to their career if they were talking to them instead of talking to me. So this conversation's okay for now, it's sort of filling some time, it's maybe interesting and engaging, but, but I want to make sure that I'm not missing that 
that guy who can really help me. Always looking over my shoulder. What is, that, what is that broadcasting to me? They don't really care about me. I'm a means to an end, maybe, but also maybe not as useful as somebody else. What's that going to do to our conversation, to our connection with one another? Let me try another one. A few months ago, I read a fascinating article in Vanity Fair on the effect of Tinder, a dating app, on the culture in New York City, among New York City's singles. Now, I'm not going to get into what Tinder is uh, or all the reasons that you shouldn't use it. Uh, I'm happy to do that some other time. I just want to observe something this article observed about the effect that this was having on dating relationships in New York City. So Tinder is this app, but I'll have to say this just in case you don't know what it is. It, uh, it's a dating app that brings up people's pictures. But instead of full profiles, it's basically just a picture. and You, just, you can get more information if you want, but... Mostly the thing works where you just swipe through pictures until you find one that you're interested in and you send them a, a request to see if they want to go out on a date with you. Well, this, uh, this journalist sort of embedded in the New York City singles scene for a while and watched how this was being used. Describes being in these, in these clubs or restaurants where people are coming to hang out with one another, to be in the, each other's presence. Maybe on a stool next to each other. On their phones. Not paying attention to the person who's actually sitting next to them. Both on their phones, swiping through other options. And that, it doesn't stop there. Talked to, interviewed many people who were using this to set up three or four dates at, at a time. Sometimes in the same couple of days span. Interviewed people who would be on a date that they'd gotten through Tinder. On Tinder, when the person they're on a date with goes to the bathroom or something, they're on Tinder, swiping through, looking to set up the next date said one user, you can't be stuck in one lane. There's always something better. Now, imagine that. Hold that. Imagine, imagine what they're saying. They're saying, hold that thought. I really want to hear what you have to say. But, you know, I, I got other dates to set up too. Can, can you hold on here? I got, to, I got to respond to this request. Hold that thought to the one they're on a date with. Setting up more. pretty much how we treat God more often than not, isn't it? We, we try to engage Him. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we come into it with the best of intentions. But even while we're with Him, we're swiping through, looking for better options. You can't stay in one lane. Something better might come along. Now imagine the effect on our relationship with God when we treat Him like that. When we're the one always looking for better options, even when we're with Him, ostensibly. Even when we're here, gathered to hear his word, to sing his praises. Even when we've carved out a time in our day where we're going to read from his word or pray to him. If at the same time we're feeding desires for other things. Things that maybe he has condemned. Things that at, the, at, at best are distracting to us. Are fueling desires that compete with him. What effect could that have? What other effect could that have on our ability to see him, to experience his presence, than to shut it down? It's insulting. It kills intimacy. It kills trust. It kills loyalty. It kills relationships. So what Jesus is saying here, it just makes sense, doesn't it? If you want to see him, if you want to experience his presence, if you want your relationship with him to be vibrant, you've got to be pure in heart. 
You actually have to want him. You actually have to shut down your looking for other options at every turn and give yourself over to him. It's not an unreasonable demand. It's an essential demand. It's an inevitable demand. To be with him, you have to want to be with him. And Jesus' remarkable promise is that if you want to see him with purity of heart, you will see him. So how can I become pure in heart? Hopefully, it makes sense now why purity of heart is necessary. It's not an unreasonable demand. It's just how relationships work. It has to be this way. Hopefully now you see why it's necessary. Jesus isn't asking too much here. He's just stating the obvious. The real question is, how can I be pure in heart? If everything rests on that, where do I get it? I'm going to give you three steps. Three steps for each of us. Three steps to become pure in heart. Here's number one. First, you've got to pray fervently because it's God's work. If you want to be pure in heart, you've got to pray like you mean it, fervently. Because purity of heart is always God's work. This is where I want to make sure that you understand the beautiful story of the gospel. Understand some of you may not know this story. Maybe you've come because you're interested in what Christians believe about God and about what he's done and what he offers. So I don't want to even, I don't want us to ever have any, any time in God's word that we don't press pause and make sure that story is clear. That story is really relevant to what Jesus is talking about here to how we become pure enough to be worthy of seeing God and knowing Him. The story of the gospel speaks directly to purity of heart, to our lack of it, and to what God did about us. The Bible's story says that God made us, that none of us can take credit for the fact that we're here. We're all here because God decided for His own purposes, for His own glory, to make us, to make us and then satisfy us to have us love him above all else, to be satisfied with him and him alone, to give us all of his goodness and beauty. The Bible tells us that every trace of beauty or joy in any object in any part of the world is nothing but a reflection of God's own beauty, of his own goodness. It's like rays of the sun. It's like streams from a fountain. God is the sun. God is the fountain. And he made us to satisfy us at every turn with his goodness and his beauty. But our story is one of discontent. Our story is one of joy on our terms. As if the good things in the world, the things that we enjoy, were more about us than they were about him. As one of the prophets put it, Jeremiah put it, what we've been doing, what what all of us have done is trade in the fountain of living water, the source of all goodness and nourishment, a source of life itself. Trade in the fountain of living water for what Jeremiah describes as broken cisterns that can't even hold water. Not only are they not a source of water, they're, 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 they're pots that can't even hold the water somebody else puts in them. 
our actions, our trading of the source of all good things for the reflections of his goodness as if they alone could satisfy us is insulting. It's dishonoring to God. It treats him as if he can't be compared to the things we really want out of life. But God responds to our rejection of him by coming even closer. The gospel story is of God watching the people he made for himself in his own image to give them everything that they needed. Watching them decide he isn't trustworthy, run after other things, and choosing to run after them. Taking the insult, absorbing it, and going after them anyway. The story of the gospel is of God actually becoming one of us. Taking on a human body that could live the life we were meant to, that could die a death he didn't deserve, so that he could give us his his sacrifice so that we don't have to die. And not only that, the gospel's promise is of a dramatic change in heart that will make all of us able to see his beauty and love him with a pure heart. The gospel story is that our guilt has been transferred to Jesus and he's paid for it in full. And what gets transferred to us is the life we should have led and a new ability to see it all clear. A new ability to actually love what God says about himself, to love what he asks for from us to not obey it like, like, like a slave under a whip, but to obey because we love it, because we see its beauty and want it, want what he wants. Here's the way one of the prophets put this expectation. Jesus is telling us it's fulfilled in him. Here's what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 36. I'm going to start reading in verse 24. I will take you from the nations, he's writing to Israel, scatter to the winds because of their disobedience, because of their lack of love for God. He says to them, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. You're coming home. Then verse 25 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You see what he's promising? In the new world he's coming to bring in, people get new hearts, pure ones, as a gift. I will put my spirit within you, he continues, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I'll put my spirit in you so that you'll want what's good for you. You won't just have to hunker down and do it, you'll want it. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. There it is, his presence again. Same things Jesus is promising, same things Jesus is prescribing, the prophets promise to give. Jesus is saying, what he's forecasting in Matthew 5, 8 is, that time is now. I'm here. My kingdom is the one the prophets were speaking of. And the New Testament will go on to tell us that it was Jesus' work to make it possible. Titus chapter 2 says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. 
How do you become pure in heart? You become pure in heart when God purifies your heart. It's his work. Established on a foundation laid by Jesus and carried out by a spirit that Jesus came to give us. The real work is God's work. And that means our role is to pray. To pray desperately. To pray like we can't do without it. Let me give you two psalms you can use to pray. If you want to see God, you know you need a pure heart, a heart that wants to see him. The key to seeing God is wanting to see God. If that's not where you are, anytime you can tell that's not where you are, pray Psalm 42 and pray Psalm 51. Psalm 42 is a famous psalm that starts out, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. When shall I come and appear before God? It's the prayer of one who knows he isn't seeing God like he wants to. Of of someone who knows that she has no hope apart from being able to see God. and, and, And she has no way to see God unless God gives himself to her. You pray as the one who pants like a deer for water. Read that psalm and pray it. Pray Psalm 51. This is a psalm of David after David was caught in, an, in, in adultery and murder. David had been guilty of stealing one, a man's wife and then having him killed to cover it up. He gets confronted by that, about that by one of the prophets and he's convicted immediately and he understands the implications. People like me don't get to see God. People who've done what I've done don't get to experience his presence. People who have wanted what God has forbidden Don't get to have God at the same time. And so David prays in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Have mercy on me, O God. If you want a pure heart, God's going to have to give you one. And that means your role in it is to pray. You don't have to make yourself pure first as if you could undo what you've already done. There's no one here, no matter what you've done, who can't be pure in heart and see God. There isn't one of you, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, that can't have a pure heart, that can't see God. You just have to pray for it. That's the first thing. If you want to be pure in heart, that's the first thing that it takes. Pray fervently because it's God's work. He's going to have to do it. Here's another thing. If you want to be pure in heart, secondly, then you need to put to death whatever competes with God for your heart. You need to put to death whatever you recognize is competing with God for your heart. I heard somebody give the analogy of a heart transplant. You know, the, the, the gospel, the Bible, the whole Bible is so clear on this. You can't clean up your heart. It's past saving. God's going to have to give you a new one. That's Ezekiel 36. I will give them a new heart. I'll put my spirit in them. Think of it as a heart transplant. But then, let's say you're a heart transplant patient. You get a new heart. It's one that works well. You're still going to have to work it out, right? You're still going to have to do good, responsible things with that heart. 
You're going to have to exercise more than you did before your heart failed, maybe. Or eat differently than you did before your heart failed. You're going to have to take this new heart and be faithful, a faithful steward of it. And the New Testament describes Christians' responsibility in the same way. Us becoming pure is ultimately God's work, but in that work, he calls us to embrace what he's doing, to, to lean into what he has to do. And one of, the, one of the main ways that we do that is by looking really carefully for signs in ourselves that we are divided in our hearts, that we are wanting things that God hasn't given us, that we are wanting things more than we want him, or wanting things independently of him. So one of the things we've got to do if we want to grow in purity of heart, if we want to see God and experience his presence more than we are, is we've got to look carefully and put to death whatever's competing with him. We can't expect to have a good, vibrant, meaningful, encouraging relationship with God while we're at the same time feeding appetites that are competing with him. If you're feeding things you know are displeasing to him, you will not see him in the way that you want to. So, what that means is that though it's true that God loves us as we are, though it's true that God came for sinners and not for those who are pure on their own, we can never, ever use that truth to justify not caring about purity. The mess of our lives is the starting point God meets us there. While we were yet sinners, Christ dies for us. But that mess is the starting point. It is not the destination. We don't get to stay messy. God wants to renovate our lives for our own good and for his glory. So our responsibility is to look for that mess, to identify it, to hand it over to him, and to do what we can to starve it out. We've got to be vigilant in seeking out unholy loves. Think, ask yourself questions like, what do you want? What do you daydream about when your mind drifts? What is it that causes you stress when it's threatened? Or sadness when it's lost? Really, you're going to need help if you want to identify what it is that needs to be starved out. One of the most beautiful things about the local church, one of the main reasons Jesus set it up, is that we're blind to our own issues more often than not. But our friends, especially close friends, are not blind to them. (laughs) They see them, right? They see them in all their ugliness. And that's a gift. So what you need to do is put the church to use. You need to put your friends to use in recognizing the things that are competing with God in your heart that maybe you can't even see so that you can put them to death so that you can starve them out. Hebrews 3 says, Hebrews 3 calls on all of us to watch over each other carefully lest any of us fall to an unbelieving heart, an impure, unbelieving heart. It's on all of us to make sure all of us stay pure. So I want to encourage you to seek that out from your friends and I want to encourage you to give that to your friends. To, to, to be constantly watching the people that you love, that are close to you, that, who are in your life, to help them see where they're running after things that aren't going to deliver. Where actually they're running after things that are going to keep them from the fullness of God's presence that, that, that 
God wants them to enjoy, that, that we want them to enjoy. Here's the last thing I'll say. If you want to be pure in heart, well, first you need to pray because it's God's work and you can't do it. And he's promised he will when you want it. So pray. Then you need to put to death whatever it is that's competing with him in your heart. So search and destroy and use your friends for that. Lastly, sort of the flip side of that second point, the second point is you put to death appetites that are competing with God. You want to feed appetites for God, specifically for seeing him. You want to be constantly taking into your mind and through your mind into your heart the reasons it's a good thing to see God. You need to feed your mind and your heart with all of the reasons it's a good thing to see God. You need to focus on what that actually means. I think at first glance, it doesn't immediately mean much. We don't immediately know the payoff of seeing God. We have to think our way there. We have to carefully reflect on it. We have to turn to the scriptures to find out what that would actually mean and then think on what it would mean so that we want what it would mean and that wanting creates a pure heart by God's grace. So what does it mean to see God? Why should our appetites hunger after that? Well, for one thing, to see his face is to know that you're not unworthy. One of the Bible's consistent themes is that only the worthy can see God, can enter his presence. The whole temple system of the Old Testament was put in place to make that point. God wants to be with you, but you can only come this far. You're not worthy to come further. But the gospel tells us that, that now the temple is Jesus not some building that we come into that, that ropes us off from where his presence is really felt, but a person who has come to us, who has fully paid for our sins so that now we are welcomed into God's presence. To see his face is to know God is for me. It's to know there is nothing left to do than what's been done. It's to know that you are approved of. To see his face is to know that you're approved of. It's not wrong to want approval. We were made to seek approval. The problem is that we seek approval in all sorts of places we shouldn't seek it. We care more about the approval of our friends or our families or our employees or our employers or, or, or whatever, uh, whatever uh, publishing peer review process you might be submitting to. We seek approval in all the wrong places. But we were made to seek approval. We were made to seek it in God. And to see his face would be to know to have a promise that you are approved of. You are what you were supposed to be. It's to have the peace of knowing that the job was well done and you didn't even have to do it. That's what it is to see his face. But there's more. To see his face would also be to know that you're not deceived about the trustworthiness of his promises. It would be an end to your doubt, in other words. And those of us who struggle with doubt, either, either once or chronically, we know that what we long for in those times is to see that it's really true. We want to see his face. 
We want reason to believe. But one of the things we sometimes don't see is that there's a moral component to our doubt. A lot of times what feeds doubt is that we're holding back part of our heart, part of our desires, and giving it to something other than God. We don't fully want Him to be true because what we want is the ability to keep doing these other things that we want. That our, our doubts are sometimes intellectual, but often moral. It would be inconvenient for Him to be true. To see His face requires a purity of heart that genuinely wants him to be true. And with that purity of heart comes a promise that we will see him. We will know that he's true. To see his face would be to know that we're not alone in suffering. Suffering's disorienting, isn't it? Some of the, some, some of the questions we ask, are, we ask things like, how is it that this is happening? Why? Why to me? What's next? What can I do about it? Where can I turn? When things are hard, you can feel often like, like a child lost in a large and unfamiliar city. To see God's face would be to know that you're not alone. That you aren't alone in a city of uncontrollable and unpredictable danger. It would be to have the assurance of a child in that same city, a child who's got the hand of the child's father. In the hand of the father, that city has a whole different tone to it, doesn't it? It appears different. The context doesn't shift. What shifts is what you know to be true, that you're not alone. This is what comes by seeing his face. It's to have a present assurance that he's with you and for you. Here's what Isaiah 43 promises. Do not fear, God says. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. I know who you are. You're mine. So when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And the flames will not overcome you. Do not fear. I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. The presence of God, to see his face, is to know that even in the fire or the flood, you're not alone. And ultimately, friends, to see his face, what's your appetite with this? To see his face is to be home. Ultimately, what Jesus is talking about is not just our experience of his presence now in this life, but ultimately the destination for all those who are with Jesus. A world in which he is fully accessible to us, in which he is with us, in which there's no reason to fear because everything is provided and protected by him. And longing for this full and final seeing of God is how we grow in purity now. Revelation describes the day that is coming with the return of Jesus. 
using terms a whole lot like the ones Jesus has pointed to in Matthew 5, 8. Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5. Here's what John saw. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, our city, the city coming down for us. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and His servants will worship Him. They will see his face. Sound familiar? And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And he will reign forever and ever. To see God's face ultimately is to know this world is to have reached glory. It's hard to imagine but the heart of this world is God's presence directly. And the pure in heart will see Him. 1 John says, 1 John 3 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. We're already with Him in a sense. We see Him, know His presence now in a sense. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And this is the key, friends. Here's what John says. Everyone who thus hopes in Him Everyone who is wetting their appetite for that day when you see him as he is and become like him. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. What John's telling us is that if we want the purity of heart by which we see God, we need to think a lot about the return of Jesus and the new world he's promised to bring. When's the last time you thought of it? Father, we long to know the sweetness of your presence that would set our fears at ease. That would put an end to our sense of loneliness. That would remove the need for faith because we would have sight. We trust that that day is coming. We ask you to hold us until that day. And to do your work in us, purifying us even now, so that we can see and know the beauty of your character, the sweetness of your love, and the joy that comes to all those who rest in you. Purify us as you are pure, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.